Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, August the 4th, 2017. That means it's time for the Monster Show of the Week. That is the listener, I'm sorry, the Expert Council Q&A. And I have a bunch of great stuff for you guys today. Uh, from Doc Bones, we're going to hear about dealing with anxiety in a natural way. We're going to talk about swales and frost pockets with Ben Falk. We're going to learn about handling cattle. And what I mean by that is like when you get new cattle and you bring them to your property and you're kind of doing the introductory thing and have you handle them that way or when they're fixing to graduate and go to Bovine University and they have to go back out, like the facilities for doing that. It's actually pretty cool. We'll hear about that from full-time farmer Darby Simpson. Uh, we're going to hear about prepping the ground for asparagus from Nick Ferguson. And we're going to hear a segment called Stephen Harris Was Wrong from Stephen Harris. We're going to hear about mining empty blocks in Litecoin. What's all that about and why from Brandon Todd. And then I'm going to do a little piece I'm going to call Why There Is No Such Thing as a Libertarian City or a Libertarian Town. And I will actually at some point in it explain how there could be such a sort of kind of concept, but it still wouldn't be a Libertarian City or a Town. And I'll tell you about the... Uh, The article that spurred this I shared recently in Facebook and just made me decide I had to talk about this because it really drives home an, an important understanding about what government is. And I'll let you draw your own conclusions from it when I get to that. Before we do all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was... Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. All right, so before we get into all the great stuff with the Expert Council this week, let's talk about the year that was from history. We're up to the year 38. I have two for you today, one from Southpaw Ben and one from David Verne. From Southpaw Ben on TSP Wiki, we have Herod Agrippa visits Alexandria. This year, Herod Agrippa visits Alexandria, which sparked massive anti-Jewish riots and the mob wanting to place statues of Caligula in every synagogue. Later, he will, intercede when Cal he will intercede when Caligula attempts to put his own statue in the temple at Jerusalem. Josephus claims he was successful in preventing it. However, Philo of Alexandria claims that Caligula later does it anyway, erecting a colossal statue of himself made of gilt brass, transforming the Jewish temple into a temple for Caligula. My take by Southpaw Ben. Christians, historians from this time, take a much more negative view of Herod Agrippa than most Jewish historians. Agrippa will eventually rule as king of Judea for three years, but for now, his uncle Herod Antipas is the ruling of the region. Um, and then we have Imperial Madhouse from David Verne. Caligula's beloved sister, Julia Drusilla, dies in the middle of this year. 
and without her mellowing influence, Caligula goes further off the deep end. Augustus and Tiberius deferred to the Senate and maintained the illusion of power being vested in them by the Senate. Caligula did everything he could to embarrass and demean the Senate. He forced them to run alongside his carriage on the streets of Rome. Senators who didn't show up were in or weren't enthusiastic enough, were targeted for future humiliation. Caligula would frequently invite senators to dine with him during the meal and would pick out one of the married women and take her to the bedroom. Neither the husband or wife could do anything about this. Any challenge to Caligula was being treated as a capital offense. And executions weren't just strangulation or beheading. Caligula would have people bled and nicked to death. In some cases, executioners keeping the victims alive for hours. Parents were forced to watch these executions of their children. After the people were executed, their estates were seized and sold to pay for Caligula's growing deficit. He also began referring to himself as a god and would appear in public dressed as one of the gods. My take by David Verne. Caligula was married four times during his life. His first wife died in childbirth, and his second and third wives were stolen from other men. His second wife, Livia Orestilla, was taken on her hus- from her husband on her wedding night by Caligula, who was one of the wedding guests. He abandoned her days later and forbid her to bury another man. Her actual husband, Gaius Calpurnius Piso, was banished from Rome but survived Caligula's reign. Piso will later be involved in a plot to kill Nero. There will be good emperors in Roman history, ones that will use their power to do a lot of good, but the reign of Caligula shows us the risk of giving anyone absolute power is just too great. I would say the lesson here is giving government power is a risk that's too great. Um, this kind of stuff's not obviously happening in the United States today. And it, it, it is partially, at least, because there's some limits on government. It's also because we live in the year 2017, not the year 38, and it's a little harder to get away with shit like this in this modern time. Uh, the more educated people become, the less they are willing to be oppressed with the steel hand of the, straight, the state, but it seems like many of them beg for the velvet hand of the state to strangle their fellow man so that they can get what they want. I'll leave it there because it fits in nicely with my segment that will be the anchor for today's show at the end. want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, first question for an expert council member. We're going to start out on a question on dealing with anxiety for old Doc Bones. Doc, take it away, man. 
Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with close to a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way, and an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Kenny, who writes... I had a severe brain trauma as a teenager that left me fairly scrambled. While I have recovered mostly, I still suffer from depression and anxiety. I've been on almost every medication out there for those, and they either make me into a complete zombie or they make me feel just fine with killing myself. I've chosen to not medicate with those again as I am able to keep myself pretty well adjusted most of the time. While depression is a fairly low occurrence, my anxiety is fairly high. Is there anything natural that you found to be more effective than the others in the herbal world? I've handled it on my own for over a decade and can continue to do so. If I can find something that can help, though, the reprieve would be much appreciated. Kenny. Kenny, it's a rare individual who doesn't experience anxiety in normal or not-so-normal times. Anxious people think catastrophically. That is, they're always assuming the worst. And in most cases, things are truly not as bad as they seem. But after a disaster, certainly their concerns may be completely realistic. Anxiety is similar to the flight-or-fight response, something useful in an emergency. However, whether or not there is an immediate danger, anxiety could be a constant obstacle to your quality of life. Anxiety is more than just an uneasy mind, and one person shows it differently than another. The symptoms can be mostly emotional, mostly physical, or some combination of both. You might note emotional symptoms like irrational fears, difficulty concentrating, jumpiness, extreme pessimism, irritability, mental paralysis or inability to act when needed, or the opposite, the inability to stand still. You could notice physical symptoms like shortness of breath, a rapid pulse, palpitations, perspiration, an upset stomach or diarrhea, tremors, tics or twitches, tense muscles, headaches, or sleeplessness. You're trying not to take pharmaceuticals, which I certainly understand if it really caused you to have suicidal thoughts. As as such, you might have to look to your medicinal herb garden for plants that have an effect on mood. There are many herbs that claim to relieve anxiety. Most of these have a mild sedative effect and can easily be made into teas. They include things like valerian, lemon balm, passion flower, chamomile, catnip, a skullcap, and hops, believe it or not. Most of these involve dried leaves, roots, and flowers steeped in a cup of hot water. And some of these should be strained before drinking or have raw honey or lemon added for flavor. We have these all listed in the Survival Medicine Handbook. Essential oils of lavender, frankincense, chamomile, citrus, and others can be used as aromatherapy. As with all home remedies, many people experience different results. Some people may get a significant amount of help from this, and some people may not. Now, one useful method of dealing with anxiety is to write down your worries on paper. Sometimes just seeing them in black and white will have some kind of positive effect. In one study, students were asked to write down their fears about an upcoming final exam. Those people who put them down on paper did better on the exam than those who didn't. Set aside just a short part of your day to concentrate on your anxieties with your list in hand or in mind and keep that time period limited to maybe 20 minutes or so. If you can do that, you might be able to get beyond it for the rest of the day and therefore become more productive. 
Anxieties and survival often revolve around life's uncertainties. There's always some uncertainty in life, both in good times and bad times. Dwelling on those issues will not make things any less uncertain, but will prevent you from dealing successfully with them. In the meantime, improve your quality of life. Do this by assuring good nutrition, reducing substances such as nicotine, caffeine, and alcohol, encouraging exercise, constructive activities, promoting rest breaks, good hygiene, good sleep habits, instituting sessions for relaxation therapy perhaps, like meditation, massage, deep breathing. Having said all of this, if you find yourself thinking of ending it all, Kenny, please don't. Seek the help of a qualified professional. This is Joe Alton, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you experienced the joy and satisfaction that goes with helping the elderly? Well, make an old man, that's me, very happy, and yourself medically prepared by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code off anything in the store. Use it to fill those holes in your medical supplies. So just a couple thoughts here. One, I'm all for avoiding uh, psychotropic drugs. Uh, the, the, I believe that the majority of what's being done with medications, I didn't know, I did not say all, but the majority of being what's being done with medication for things like anxiety and other mental illnesses is, in general, not productive, and it is simply for pharmaceutical companies to make money with. Uh, I do think there are some conditions that are actually highly treatable with pharmaceutical medications. Uh, in my experience, and I am not a doctor, I don't even pretend to be one on TV, but in my experience, from what I've seen from people who have anxiety disorders and often then you know when you start talking about feeling suicidal something depression and anxiety seem to go together um it, it it tends to not appear to me that it really helps and that's anecdotal but that's so i am for trying to avoid that if possible i'm also very much proactively for counseling uh and specifically i think you need to go to a counselor that is not able to prescribe medicine to you, uh, no matter what level of counselor you find. But if they have the option, it's going to be what they do first. I, I, I have met and, and experienced almost not a single, like I, I just basically, I've never met a psychiatrist who has patients and any significant portion of them, or maybe even any of them, they're not prescribing medication to go along with any sort of or level of counseling. And that to me is disturbing because it means that you're not first attempting that which harms least. And um, in particular, I can tell you, when my son's birth father passed away, he was upset, and we wanted him to get to talk through it. And we knew that he would never really talk to us. So we got a referral from the doctor my wife was working for. This guy was a psychiatrist. He spent less than five minutes with our son and wanted to put him on antidepressants. Less than five minutes. He's like, in my opinion, he's clinically depressed. Like, his father died two weeks ago. That's why we brought him here, to talk to you. Well, And, 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 and I almost got up and, and put the guy through a wall. I finally just, walked, just got up, go get our son, we're leaving, we're never talking to you again. We then found a psychologist, okay, which is what we should have done in the first place, who spent about, I think, six sessions with our son talking through things. 
never really told us anything they talked about, which was great because it gave him confidence that he could discuss whatever he wanted. And about the, it was about the sixth week that we had brought him there. He said he doesn't need me anymore. He's fine. And I think it helped a lot. And I think a lot of times anxiety and depression again go together. And, and I think people are, for some reason, they don't feel like any kind of shame or anything taking a, a drug for a mental condition. But they seem to think like it's not okay to go get counseling help, which I think is actually far more effective. I also think that one of the best things you can do is learn basic meditation techniques to deal with anxiety. I think that that is probably the single most effective thing that you can do. You take some time during your day and you clear your thoughts. And I'm talking full on sitting in a, you know, sitting with folded legs, hands up, meditation. If that seems embarrassing or something, go find a closet to do it in. But focus on your breathing to the exclusion of everything around you and create a mental reset. That, I think, is another amazing thing you can do. Um, there is a tea that I think is it uses some of the herbs that Bones mentioned that I think for people with anxiety would be very good to use when going to sleep. I'm working on a better version of it, but I'm not there yet. Uh, but it's called Dream Tea. And it's made by a company called Mountain Rose Herbs. And I have a link in the show notes. And I think sleeping well and allowing your mind to actually process your concerns in dreams is one of the things that helps people deal with anxiety. That's been now worked out by the mind. The mind has what dreams really are. That's really why they seem so crazy sometimes when you remember them. They're like, wow, like how are these things connected or whatever? It's your mind rearranging things and, and re resetting how things are interpreted. I think another thing that could be helpful to people with any sort of mental distress in their lives is keeping a dream journal and writing down your dreams. If you have a dream and you wake up, don't move. Think about the dream. This is the key if you want to actually remember your dreams. Don't move. Don't move a finger. When you wake up from that dream, replay as much of that dream in your mind as you can, then Pull out the journal and write it down. Just put it away. When you read it later, you'll actually be able to remember the dream. You might even remember more. And start asking yourself what these things mean. And you start then figuring out what you're actually upset about or actually worried about would be another thing. And then I think like the biggest thing people with just anxiety in general need to do is realize that your fear of what will happen is actually far worse than what will actually happen. And one of the better ways to do that, and this is something I had to, like, as a, as a father, work through with my son. He was always worried, what if this, what if that? So we'd sit down and I'd go, let's look at all the things that actually have happened that you were worried about from the last five years. And we'd have to think hard because most of them didn't. But, you know, we'd figure a few things out. And what was the result of that? Are you still here? Are you bleeding? Did anything really bad happen? And I think that's, like, an important thing. Like, people, like, so worried, so anxious that something will happen. Well, Most of the things you worry about happening, they won't. And if they did, it's no big deal. And I think it's this is really retraining the mind because the mind has been basically, if you have anxiety, you've been put into a state of mind that has a, an incredible value for survival. If you're in a position where somebody's captured you and you're trying to escape, then you need to be on hyper alert and paying attention to everything around you and considering everything a possible threat. And looking for every possible opportunity to get away. If you're walking through the woods and you hear a lion and it's going to chomp you, or a bear and it's going to eat you, 
that anxiety is useful because the threat is real. The problem is that you're not able to shut it off. And learning to shut it down is the key. Because it's a perfectly legitimate emotion. It's really no different than walking around being sad all the time or happy all the time. Both of those would be problems. And you'd think sad would be a bigger problem than happy. But imagine a person that's constantly happy at all the wrong times. You know the newscaster that smiles when they talk about the 30-car pileup? Imagine being at a funeral ear to ear. Smiling. Ear to ear, baby. Some of you know what that's from, right? Like, that could be, so anytime there's an emotion or a, a, a psychophysical response that can't be shut down, that's where the problem comes from. So learning to, to progressively shut it down is the solution. And meditation and analyzing your dreams and then self-therapy in addition to, you know, getting some help, but self-therapy of going through things that you were worried about that actually happened and went, Shit, nothing really. What? That's that's huge, guys. I, I, I've seen it in people around me, and I've seen people that can't do it. So that's where that that professional help, and you got to want it to work too for it to work. Um, but definitely don't don't end your life, man. That's that won't solve any problems for anybody. In fact, it'll make it a lot worse for a lot of people. Let's take another one. This one is um, for Ben Falk. We haven't heard from for quite a while, and. Uh, about swales and frost pockets. And while I think there's some legitimate issues here that Ben will cover, I smell blueberry pie and big man sweat. Yes, I smell the stench of Paul Wheaton in this question. Anyway, Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk, Whole Systems Design. Question about frost pockets and swales. It's a good one, uh, and it's a common concern, and it makes sense that if you're going to be slowing water flow, checking water's movement across a hillside, a slope, you're going to be checking the movement of air as well because air moves like water um, across contour. So that is a, it, it can be a problem. It's not, though, a problem that I've seen happen in reality. Um, and I think that's in large part because of the size and the scale of, of swales, at least most swales, and swales certainly that I have, which are just not, um, you know, a huge feature in the landscape in terms of really backing up much air. Um, but, you know, I, that being said, I'm sure it could be a problem in certain situations, especially as vegetation on a planted swale or just below a planted swale, um, you know, grows up and, and starts to form, you know, a real dam for the frost to back up against, or excuse me, for the cold air to back up against and a place for the air movement to become still, which is what you need for frost to really set. Um, so, you know, you're going to have more of an issue of this in, in valleys than on ridges um, for settling of cold air reasons. So, you know, one thing you might do is, is really work on a bit of a key line pattern in terms of, you know, valley to ridge pattern um, and pitch your swales 2 to 4% grade um, from valley to ridge. That's going to help move water to where you need it most anyways in, in big rain events if that's uh, appropriate for your climate, which it may or may not be. Um, and then you're going to be also moving cold air along a little bit, which could be somewhat helpful. It might not be consequential. You know, I would look at sites in your immediate area 
and and observe the natural and other human landscapes for kind of how this might affect your site. Um, you're cold, dry. I'm cold, wet. So there are pretty significant differences there. Um, but yeah, it's a good question. It's something to to be concerned about. For root protection, I would be mostly focused on trying to retain snow on your landscape, whatever snow you you can get. And so that's all about windbreaks, really, more than anything. Um, I don't think swales in of themselves are going to give you specific root protection or not. Um, moisture, if anything, is going to allow frost to dive deeper. Dry soil is a better insulator than wet soil. So that's something to consider as well. Um, but I know the Black Hills, I've been to the Black Hills, and it's a pretty dry, pretty dry zone for sure. You probably have half the rainfall we have if not a little bit less than that um so yeah good luck with it and um sorry for not you know it's not a very specific answer but it's some things to consider and sometimes that's just the most honest way and direct way to look at it um you know not a prescription but other questions to ask and other uh, certain things to look for and observe so you can answer your own question over time through observation in, in similar landscapes. Thanks a lot. I, I guess what I'll add to that is this. So, if we build a swale and we have a berm, and the, the concern then is that frost, the, your colder air, since it's denser, will flow down the grade and accumulate in that swale. Trees on the other side of it are actually somewhat then, in some ways, protected from it. My personal feeling is this is, I, I love Paul Wheaton, but I, I know I smell his blueberry stink in this. I just do. It's blueberry pie eating stink in this. It is so over-concerned about that I don't think it's that big of a deal to worth worrying too much about. Um, I think that if you're in a place where this is a concern, then obviously you want to think about the microclimates you're creating or what have you. But, you know, creating cooler climates has benefits as well. And I, I just think that, you know, if you're planting the right species for the ecosystem that you're in and the ecosystem that you're creating, you know, frost pocket, whatever, if you're these places where people are still worried about these frost pockets, it freaking freezes freaking three months out of the year, four months out of the year straight anyway. So I, I, I think it's over over-concerning to some people. And I, I'd worry about it less than I'd worry about selecting the right trees that flower at the right time of year so that they don't get knocked off by frost, whether there's a pocket or not. Uh, next question I have is for Darby Simpson on ca handling your cattle. Darby, how do we handle those cattle, man? Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of DarbySimpson.com and the Grass-Fed Life podcast. This week, I've got a question from Matt up in the north woods of Wisconsin, and he's wanting to know what type of cattle handling facility I use on my farm. Uh, Matt's been fortunate enough to uh, get a uh, prescribed grazing contract with the NRCS, and he wants to install his handling system at the same time as he puts up all of his fence. Uh, he wants to integrate this all together. Um, so he wants to know how to do it right from the get-go and is wanting to know what I use. Uh, he, he mentions here that he's been on some pasture walks 
that feature bud boxes, and he's seen a lot of what Temple Grandin uh, does, but uh, notes that, you know, those systems might work better on a larger scale, uh, considering they require so much capital to start out with. So, uh, Matt, I'll share with you what we've done here, and and basically, um, you know, any any fencing projects we've done, we, we've had a couple uh, where we've gotten one in particular was an NRCS contract, another one we got a small grant from our local uh, county soil and water uh, district. So you might even check with your your county soil and water to see if they have any kind of uh, clean water grants for uh, planting pastures and things of that nature. Um, what we did is in, in each of our two larger grazing areas is we basically built a quarter acre handling facility, a, a corral, if you will. So instead of having our, you know, typical, you know, in posts and then line posts that were 16 foot on center with maybe four wires, what we've done is we've put our line posts on eight foot centers. We'll put five or more wires in each of these areas. Those eight foot centers obviously make the uh, high tensile wires a whole lot harder to spread apart. And we use these for a number of things. So, for instance, anytime we have new animals come onto the farm, uh, they go straight into one of these these corral areas, which are about a quarter acre. So call it 100 by 100. And they're going to stay in that corral, and they might have some grass to graze. Uh, they might just have hay. We do a lot of hay feeding in these areas. Might be some of each. But they're going to be in that corral for a minimum of, like, 48 hours, usually 72 hours. And that's because... We have just rocked their world. We, we've taken them from everything they've known. We've brought them onto a new farm. It's a new environment with new people running around. They're not used to us. Oftentimes we'll actually get cattle that aren't trained fully to electric. So, uh, we'll, we'll put them in this corral. We, we let them, uh, get introduced to electricity so they know what that's all about. A lot of times we'll even go ahead and set up, uh, some of our portable step-in posts and reels. And like cut the uh, corral area down a little bit, not not a ton, but we'll, we'll make it so that they, you know, are contained uh, within that that portable structure. Just so they get used to everything. They get used to what our system looks like out in the pasture. Um, and then within these quarter acre corrals, what we've done is we've actually, uh, if, if you can imagine, on one side of, of this, so within this 100 by 100 box. We've got a 12 foot gate on, on either end that goes out, uh, to, to larger grazing areas. And then we've, we basically come in 12 feet and we've made a 12 foot wide laneway. And what we'll do is we'll get all the cows in there or whatever and we'll separate the ones we want, uh, that are going to get loaded up to go see the butcher. And, uh, we'll separate everybody else and maybe push them out of the corral. We might just get the, two, three, four animals that we're hauling off to the butcher. We'll get them separated. And this is taking quite a few years, what I'm, what I'm giving you here, Matt. But we've kind of got this down to a fine art now where uh, a lot of times with just myself and my wife or maybe my oldest son or a family friend will, will give us a hand. We'll get the, get the cows going and get them over into this laneway. We, we get them through. Uh, an additional 12 foot opening that is there and we get them going down that laneway. We've got our livestock trailer all set up and we've got usually somebody that's kind of hiding behind the door and, uh, they're waiting to close it. We've, we've backed the livestock trailer up to where one of these 12 foot gate openings are that go out to the larger grazing pasture. Uh, so that we're up against a kind of a, you know, a hard fixed area and we just get them going down the laneway and, um, What'll happen is we get them up kind of close to the livestock trailer and 
oftentimes they'll just kind of walk on in because they, 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 they want to get away from us. So they'll walk on into the livestock trailer. But what we've got the option of doing is, is taking, if you will, the, uh, the gate, uh, that's on the back of the livestock trailer is hinged on the right side. And in one of my, my, uh, corral areas, the, we've got another 12 foot gate that's hinged on the left side. So we'll actually have the ability to kind of squeeze those two gates together to form a bit of a triangle going into the back of the livestock trailer. And that's been very, very effective in getting the cows to load up. Uh, we've also got in our other corral area, what I call a loading corral. We use it more for pigs because it's connected to one of our, our big, uh, you know, areas where we raise pigs in the woods, but it's basically a 12 foot by 12 foot box that's within that 12 foot laneway. And it's got gates on all sides of it. And we do something very similar, uh, where we back the livestock trailer up, uh, and we, uh, get the animals into this, this 12 by 12 box and they've got nowhere else to go. And then we can start to squeeze them in gently, uh, using the back of the trailer, using a herding board or whatever. And like I said, we use that more for pigs, but we have also used it very successfully for cows on more than one occasion. But, uh, my, my preference is because of the size of the cows is to use the longer laneway. So call it 12 foot wide by 100 foot long and get the cows in that, get them pointed in the right direction, walk behind them. Uh, oftentimes if I'm, if I'm pushing them up there by myself, my wife's operating the door, all I'm doing is holding out two of our step in, uh, fence posts, uh, just to kind of, you know, create this visible barrier for them. Uh, you tend to learn a whole lot about flight zones with animals once you work with them a whole lot. And we just, they, they see those sticks if they kind of, you know, they're walking away from them, but they turn their head to the left or the right to look back and they see, they see that, that white stick, uh, being held out and I hold it straight out, you know, so it's five feet off the ground and that just kind of keeps them moving in the right direction. And like I said, we just squeeze them in. Honestly, it's, man, I, I mean, we're fortunate, I guess, but, I'm going to say, you know, 95% of the time, like it is pretty much zero stress, uh, with, with the cows. And it's almost always completely zero stress with the pigs. We, we've got some other tricks we use with them too, but we want to get those animals loaded up as easily as possible with very little stress because we don't want them wigging out as they're headed down to the butcher. Um, that's bad. <laughs> those adrenal glands open. And they can get really stressed out and it can actually cause your meat to be kind of tough. Uh, one other little tip I'll give you there as well, Matt, is you want to try and load them up the day before they're going to get butchered so that you take them down to the, um, you know, the, the livestock facility and, uh, at least where ours is at, uh, it's pretty quiet and peaceful. Uh, it's pretty laid back and you get them unloaded. They get a simmer down. They're there overnight. They sleep. They wake up the next morning and then, the deed is done and uh, just tends to, to pan out a whole lot better in terms of, you know, keeping them stress free and uh, just uh, making sure that we have a really good finished product for our customers, because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. So I know that's probably a little bit hard to envision. So what I'll do uh, for your question, Matt, is I'll include a couple of photographs for Jack to add into the show notes so that you can visibly see kind of what I'm talking about. But it's pretty simple. And if you got any questions, you can uh, shoot me an email. Let me know, and I'll, I'll try and explain it further if you need some help. But uh, appreciate you calling in the question today, and appreciate you listening to the Survival Podcast and also to the Grass-Fed Life uh, Podcast I do with my good friend Diego Futter. Uh, for those of you who would like to learn more about me, check out the aforementioned resources. DarbySimpson.com has a lot of free blog articles that I, I've written out there. The past uh, year and a half, I've really been focused on on doing a weekly podcast with Diego. 
Uh, we've got uh, well over 60 episodes out now, uh, hour-long episodes, where we talk about anything to do with raising uh, beef, poultry, and pork for profit. It is for profit farmsteading scale or full-time farming scale. Uh, you name it, we've covered it. I uh, also would like to mention that we will have this coming October 26th to the 28th, the third running of the Farm Business Essentials workshop that Diego and I do uh, just here in my hometown of Martinsville, Indiana, located just about 40 minutes outside of Indianapolis. It is a three-day, very intensive workshop on how to successfully go out and start a farm business. And we don't do cover just the how-to uh, on how to raise this stuff, but we cover marketing, business planning, branding, uh, you know, doing your books, you name it, we cover it. Uh, it's a great course. We've had phenomenal feedback. Uh, this course is filling up now. We've sold out the past two courses. So if you're interested, head out to permaculturevoices.com and check out the courses and you'll find a link there to the farm business essentials three-day intensive obviously if you have any questions feel free to shoot me an email about that as always everybody thanks for listening have a wonderful weekend and take care and darby did send me a couple photos um, of his facility both in, in it looks like spring and winter and I have those photos uploaded for you, and you can take a look at them to better understand what he's talking about. Uh, it's in the show notes. You'll see photo one, photo two uh, by Darby Sims, and you can click on those and get a look at this uh, equipment and infrastructure that Darby's put in. Next question I have is for Nicholas Ferguson on prepping the ground to plant next year the uh, awesome perennial crop known as asparagus. Nick, take it away. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another answer for the Expert Council, and today I have a question from Matt in New Hampshire on prepping an asparagus bed this fall for planting in the spring. As for varieties, I know lots of people have success with Jersey Night, Night with a K, and Purple Passion, and both of those have fewer female plants, which is kind of a bonus. I normally get my plants from Stark Brothers, so I check there, but... Were I you, I'd search your Craigslist or local gardening clubs or both to see if anybody has established plants they're willing to split. You'll be more likely to be happy with regionally proven plants and they'll likely establish faster too. So that's what I would do personally. You might be able to get some tips on, on how they've had success and make new relationships and support your local economy. I always prefer doing that. As for the bed preparation, I did a whole podcast, episode 46, on four steps to building healthy soil. So if you type into Google, homegrown liberty, building healthy soil, it should be the top result right there. And I have a very detailed explanation also in episode 25 of my podcast titled, Expanding Your Garden. So both of those, you know, type in homegrown liberty, expanding your garden, and it'll be the top answer. Uh, both of those give pretty well-detailed explanations for soil prep for most anything you want to grow. So you should definitely check out the blog posts. There are pictures in there, and if you want to, you can listen to the episode while you're out there doing the work. It's pretty slick. But the gist of it is this. You'll want to mark out the garden bed, hopefully on contour, so you can easily water or fertigate in the future with, you know, nothing more than gravity, and then loosen your soil where your asparagus is going to be planted next spring. You can use a broad fork or a spade. Most anything will work, but if you get started soon and you use my bed prep method, you can probably skip the back-breaking soil loosening step and just let earthworms do the work for you. They do a fantastic job with this when you give them so much food to work with. Then once the bed is marked out and optionally loosened, 
Go to the uphill side of the on-contour bed line and dig a footpath on the uphill side and turn over whatever topsoil is, was in the footpath onto the bed, break up the chunks as best you can. And what this does is it makes a soakage footpath on the uphill side and gives you more material to work with in your bed and helps level that out. And then I suggest kind of a layer of manure, about an inch thick, maybe two. I prefer rabbit, goat, or sheep, but you can use cow manure. I don't suggest using any other manure unless it's composted first with the hot compost process because poultry and pig manure are somewhat hot. They're high nitrogen manures, and horse manure also a little bit high in nitrogen, often has lots of dewormer meds and weed seeds. So a hot composting process is really needed to help mitigate those problems. And then the next ingredients are optional and listed in my in my personal priority order from highest to lowest. They're optional but highly recommended. This is a recipe for soil soup, so just make it as best you can and don't worry if you can't find one of the ingredients. I like to use some kind of ground-up seed. I call it seed meal. Uh, it could be cornmeal or ground corn, ground wheat, rolled oats, any kind of seed that's been ground up. And you want to make sure it's ground up. Don't dump a whole bag of intact, you know, whole oats or wheat or any other kind of whole seed on the bed. You'll just have a big green pile of germinating seed. You want something that will rot and feed earthworms. That's the whole point of this. We don't want to be growing, you know, plants from seed. I've used buggy or moldy chicken laying pellets, rabbit pellets, alfalfa pellets. Well, those last two aren't really seed meal. There might be a little bit of seed meal in the rabbit pellets. The alfalfa pellets are just alfalfa. It'll still help, and most animal feed will work fine. Just be sure everything is ground. I'm, you know, I'm harping on that because, you know, sometimes people kind of skip over that. And then they regret it. And there should not be medications in the feed. We're looking for optimal life here, not to add antibiotics or anti-helminthics to the soil that we want teeming with bacteria and worms. You know, we don't want dewormers in there. We don't want coccidia medication in there that'll cut down on bacteria populations. We want this tons of bacteria and lots of worms. And the next thing you could add would be some earthworms and castings. If you have local earthworms that you can kind of uh, feed beforehand, you know, under a big board and just put a whole bunch of seed meal down and put the board on top, water it in really well, you'll have a whole bunch of earthworms come up to uh, feed on that and you can kind of scrape them up and put them in your bed. Um... That's definitely not needed, but will help speed things up a bit. Um, next would be bone meal. This I probably should actually have this before in priority list, the earthworms and castings. But for some reason, this just makes the soil amazing and the worms go nuts in soil with bone meal. And last would be azomite or other rock dust if they're needed or desired. And you water everything in well and mulch it heavily. You water it in before you mulch it because those... Uh, those pellets, if you're using animal feed, will take up a lot of water. So water it low and slow and water it well and then mulch it heavily. I prefer to use forest floor duff. If you can, harvest it responsibly. That'll really help get that uh, soil biota really kicking fast. But wood chips are great, so are shredded leaves, 
most any mulch is going to be fine. You may even want to lay down soaking wet cardboard, you know, four or five layers of it before the mulch if you anticipate having weed problems. So that's the short answer. In my podcast episodes, I spent a whole lot more time explaining in more detail in both of those episodes with more little tips, but I don't have that much time here. So definitely check those episodes number 25 and 46 out in Homegrown Liberty in the Homegrown Liberty podcast or on my website, homegrownliberty.com. And before I go, I wanted to remind you guys to head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Homegrown Liberty. I'm working towards filming a permaculture designer course, and I'll be doing it online with video instead of and instead of boring lecture and dry erase boards, I'll be showing through application on my homestead and other people's properties how the principles are put into practice. And we will also be getting into the more practical aspects like how to care for small livestock, how to get a great garden going, plant propagation, how to breed your own unique vegetable and fruit cultivars, tons of really cool stuff, and we're doing this crowdfunding style. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, head over to the page to get your rewards for signing up before they're all gone. Go to patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty. All right, that's all I have this week. I'm Nick Ferguson. Keep the great questions coming. Do good things. Good stuff from our buddy Nick Ferguson there, and I do have um, links to both of the articles he referenced in the show notes for you as well. Next up, I have a segment we are going to call Stephen Harris Was Wrong. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to not answer your question. I got a little story I'm going to tell you, and it's entitled... How Steve Harris was wrong. How Steve Harris was very wrong. But first, I want to give a little shout out, shout out to my buddy, Forrest Hilt. He is my coffee guru because I don't drink coffee. And I'm doing some stuff on a video that involves coffee. So guess who I talked to? Forrest. Guess what's going in the video? The stuff that Forrest, you know, got for me. And I'll find someone local near me to test out the coffee. But um, I have another really good friend, Dave. Uh, this guy has done more in one year of his life than most people will hope to do in a lifetime. But uh, right now he t- works for more personal enjoyment than for the dollars with this really great photographer in Chicago. I mean, this guy has like a 100 megapixel medium format camera. And he gets hired to do, like, stuff for all the big brands of cereal and diaper. You name it, he shoots the still photographs for it. So, anyways, they got this gig uh, where he has to go do some photography in, um, like, the Atlanta area. And Dave is going to go with him, and Dave is also his fabricator to make up anything. And um, <clears throat> apparently there are these things called Nes- Nespresso coffee machines. Nespresso is a brand of like some Uber coffee. George Clooney sells it on TV and oh, whoever the short guy, bald guy is, I forget his name. You know, so people apparently are in rapture over Nespresso machines and they even take them with them when they travel. So it's kind of like a Keurig. You put in a, a K-cup or an espresso cup, you put in the water, you close it, and you turn it on, and it makes you your Nespresso. Cool thing being 
prime thing is that it's more like a shot of espresso than it is a coffee, but it will make a coffee. Well, anyway, so I don't get it. So Dave calls me up and says, Steve, um, I have to power an espresso machine. I go, well, what's that? He tells me. He goes, okay, well, fine. I mean, inverter, degenerator stuff. And No, 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 Steve. <clears throat> I got to put one in the back of a Suburban. I go, no, 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 no. When you stop and everything else, get a, have a small generator, a little Honda running, make your coffee and do it that way. You're not going to make it off a of battery. Steve, you don't understand. They have to make the coffee as they're driving down the road. I said, oh, my God, you got to be kidding. He goes, no. He goes, I know I can't make it off the underhood battery. So we got to have a battery in the back of the Suburban with the, the inverter and the Nespresso machine so they can make, I mean, there could be up to like seven people in this vehicle and it's going all around the different sets and everything and they got to be able to make, you know, Nespresso. I go, are these people crazy? What's going on here? You're kidding. He goes, no, I'm not dead serious. And I go, you know, Steve, I really have to do this. And I go, well, okay. I go, you know about as much as I do. You're going to need a big inverter. You might as well get a 2,000 watt with a 4,000 surge. You might as well should be a whistler because it can take a surge for 10 seconds rather than 0.1 seconds for a Cobra. He goes, okay, yeah, I'll get the inverter. And I said, how are you going to get the inverter and the espresso machine and everything to and the battery to Atlanta? He goes, we'll fly it. Will you just check it in his baggage? He goes, I fly everywhere with my Nespresso machine. I go, Dave, you're kidding. He goes, no. I go, I don't believe I know you. <laughs> and probably you people drinking Nespresso driving down the road right now listening to this is spurting Nespresso out your nose and laughter. Uh, so anyways, um, so what they do is they went and they shipped the inverter. They built it all, checked it out. They shipped the inverter. They shipped the uh, Nespresso machine in the airplane in check-in luggage. And when they get there, they go to an advanced auto parts store, and they get the best AGM battery they can buy, 200 bucks. okay? And they hook, Dave hooks up the whole thing and everything else, and it's 4 a.m. in the morning. The executive, The producer who runs everything, I'll tell you that in a second. The producer runs everything, and the producer shows up, and someone, and my guy takes a cup, a regular cup of coffee, like, you know, a 12-ounce cup, and he hands her this cup of coffee, and it's four Nespresso shots in a coffee cup, and it's 4 a.m. in the morning. And this is the producer in charge of everything. And he says, her eyes just rolled back in her head. She goes, my God, how I needed that. And I go, Okay, Dave, you got me. And all this time, people will be in and out of the vehicle. They'd be changing locations, and they're going to go, I smell coffee. And he goes, yeah, that's in the back of the Suburban. You want a cup? What is it? Nespresso. Yeah, I want a cup of Nespresso. And someone would reach over the back seat and put, you know, a cup underneath the Nespresso machine, press the button, and it would make Nespresso while they were going down the road. Is this not insanity, cats and dogs living with each other? I don't know. So, anyways, that worked. Now, cutting over to the better part of the story is a buddy of mine is a walk-on-water 
expert virtual reality. Started doing it in the 90s, early 90s. He's written three books on it. He is going to apply for some jobs in Hollywood because there's this huge VR push in Hollywood. But he doesn't know anything about making movies. So he goes to this place, go Google DVD Film Studio, okay? And it's like, um, there's a 16-hour course on how to shoot a film. And this absolute genius man by the name of, of Dub Simon, Simpson, Simpson, Simon, Dub, D-O-V is his first name. Anyways, this guy is a masterful teacher. So he goes and like he rents the 16-hour video online for like 69 bucks. And he goes through the whole thing in like two days. It's a two-day class. And he goes, Steve, you might find some parts of this interesting. Why don't you do it? And it's like, you know, I'm doing video and photography and stuff. And it's like, okay. And uh, this guy tells you how to make a $2 million picture for $200,000. And he tells you actually how to make a picture, you know, with everything you need and everything for $5,000. And this was in 2004 when you were still buying film. Okay, so he tells you how to do this on 35 millimeter film and how to buy film and everything else. So anyways, I'm listening to this guy as I'm working and doing some other stuff. And he talks about, you know, the producer, the director, the prop people, the best boy, the grip, the foldies, everything, everything you need to know in a four year film school. This guy gives to you in 16 hours. So when he's talking about the day of the shoot and one of his things is you will be on schedule and you will be on budget. So he talks about, you know, it's an 18-hour day. You start at 6 a.m. when the sun comes up. You end it your day when the sun goes down. And then you go review the footage or go get it processed and review your dailies or whatever you're doing. And you end up going to bed about 11 o'clock. And you're waking up the next morning at 4 a.m. Get used to three weeks of 18-hour of days. That's what's going to happen. He goes, your craft services, who are the people who are going to bring food and coffee and beverages and everything, will, you know, they will. The guy's really great. He kind of talks real soft like this and real gentle. And then when he wants to make a point, he makes it like this. And he's going, and your craft services, they will begin at 5 a.m. or earlier. They will have coffee. Let me say that they will have coffee. You will have coffee on your movie set at 5 a.m. in the morning, done and ready to go. You will have multiple pots of it. You will have regular in decaf. And when one pot runs out, there's another one to take its place. And you will have, um, you will have uh, half and half, and you will have whole milk and skim milk, and you'll have hazelnut powder to add to it, and you will have hot water, and you will have hot chocolate, and you will have different teas to go into the hot water. And if you don't have coffee in your movie set at 5 a.m., you will not stay on schedule because your day will be trash. So as I told you, you will stay on schedule. You will have coffee. And you will stay on budget. You will say no. And you're going to get your film done. So I listened to this guy, so incredibly articulate, a master at this craft, sitting there telling me, you will have coffee. 
And I'm listening to this like 2.30 in the morning on my laptop. I couldn't sleep, so it's like I'm watching, you know, I'm learning, okay? I don't watch TV. I just, you know, I go off on YouTube or wherever I learn something. I teach myself self-education people. And I'm going, oh, my God, I was so wrong. And the next day, I call Dave. And I go, Dave, and I leave him a message at, like, 9 a.m. I go, Dave, it's Harris. Call me. He calls me back. I go, Dave, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. You were so right. You know, coffee in the back of a Suburban as you're driving down the road is the thing. I understand it now. And I told him the story about Dove Simpson in the digital film school. And uh, he just laughed his ass off. He says, I told you, you should listen to me more often. I go, yes. So uh, to all the people who I have said, you can have one month of LED light for every cup of coffee you make in your Keurig off your battery and I told you you were foolish to give up a month worth of light to have one damn cup of coffee I tell you I am so sorry I did not understand I did not get it I'm sorry I'm not a coffee drinker please forgive me I do understand now and I guarantee Steve Harris will make sure you're safe you're illuminated. You got power for your cell phone, your TV, your DVD for the kids, and Steve Harris will make sure you can make coffee. <laughs> With that, this is Stephen Harris for the Survival Podcast. See everything I've done with Jack, including coffee, at Stephen1234.com. Thank you, guys. After all that, if you want coffee when the friggin' lights are out and whatnot, I still say get something to boil water with in a friggin' French press. But <laughs> that, was, uh, that was, I don't know, it was classic Harris. That was more like Harris 2.0. Anyway, moving on. Let's uh, have a question here now on Litecoin for Brandon Todd about people mining empty blocks. What the hell is that all about? Brandon, take it away. Hey guys, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer another question for the expert council. This question comes in from Derek. Uh, he says, basically he says, can you please ex explain what the issue is I hear in the LTC world recently about mining, and LTC stands for Litecoins. And he wants to know, in the Litecoin world about recently mining pools, purposely mining empty blocks. I understand it's to earn a block reward, uh, but how do they do it? Why Why are there empty blocks? Is this something to be concerned about long-term? Have you heard of this being a problem with other coins? All right, thanks for a great question, Derek. Uh, okay, so let's do a little background for people who are new to cryptocurrencies. Um, so most of these cryptocurrencies you hear about these days, like Bitcoin or Litecoin, have a ledger of sorts called a blockchain. This is just a way that these decentralized currencies keep track of who has what. These miners validate and construct this ledger by competing against each other to win the right to wed the next block or chunk of transactions into this ledger or blockchain. Uh, so with, with Bitcoin, this is about every 10 minutes. You know, with Litecoin, it's about every two and a half minutes on average. The way they do this is by submitting in real time uh, proof of work. <clears throat> Excuse me. When one wins a block, 
or submits enough proof of work to solve a block before anyone else does, they get not only a Coinbase reward, but also all of the fees from the actual transactions. Now, when I say a Coinbase reward, I don't mean that the company Coinbase gives them a reward. It's just what they call the mandatory supply increase reward, which is an automatic transaction that is generated by the code. This Coinbase reward halves, you know, gets cut in half roughly every four years. It started out, with Bitcoin, it started out at 50 Bitcoins in 2009, and is now uh, at 12 and a half Bitcoins. And it will half again to, you guessed it, 6.25 Bitcoins around the year 2020. In addition to this Coinbase reward, a miner also gets to collect all of the fees of all of the Bitcoin transactions that happened in that time period of around 10 minutes or so. Right now, this se- what seems like a usual amount of transaction in each block is around 2,000 or so. So as you can imagine, if fees are high, like they have been, around $3, this amount could really add up to you know somewhere between five dollars to $7,000. So to summarize again, when a miner wins a block, they get a block reward or Coinbase transaction, plus they get to collect all of the fees during that time interval. Now... What people need to understand about mining is that it's it's like always trying to win a race while also being ready to start a new race before the old race is over. For this reason, sometimes a miner will win a block very, very quickly based on luck, and the block will not even have any transactions associated with it yet. So the miner wins, collects, and starts work on the new block to try and win the next one. Every miner is doing this. This is the main reason why you will see empty blocks in blockchain-based currencies. So basically, the way I understand it, another analogy or analogy would be, you know, sort of like the game of bingo, and it would be like if someone yelled bingo, and before they they check to see if that winner is actually legit, they started playing a new game of bingo. We're talking about a very small amount of time, but with mining, milliseconds make all the difference in the world if you're trying to get started on the next block before other miners. So it seems like sort of like a game of chance for the miner, but obviously the miner would get more profit from the block if they just mined, that they just mined if they processed all the transactions because all of the uh, fees associated with it. But they also might have a better chance of winning the next block as they could be the first to start work on this next block. Uh, empty blocks are nothing new. Now, from January 2009 to June 2015, approximately 23.68% of all blocks were empty. So this will most likely keep happening for some time. Now, specifically with Litecoin, I have heard of Antpool mining uh, quite a few empty blocks. I think this might be what you're referring to regarding Litecoin specifically. Again, I don't think they're trying to do this, you know, to be malicious, but just trying to win, you know, they're just trying to win the next block, as I explained earlier. This would, this will be less of a problem over time with currencies like Litecoin and Bitcoin that have a reward that halves, that gets cut in half every so many blocks. Because at some point, the fees will be greater than the Coinbase block reward, and thus, there will be considerable less incentive to not include those transactions. So, this would be a good transition to talk about maliciously miners, or maliciously mining empty blocks to try and create havoc or even kill a currency. Theoretically, this could be deployed as a DOS or a denial of service attack to dissuade users from using a specific currency. A miner or group of miners could purposely mine empty blocks, foregoing all of the fees by not processing the transactions and essentially keep users from transacting. Uh, hold on here. Of course, over time, this would not be profitable for those miners, so this would have to be well funded in advance to keep 
up such an attack for any considerable amount of time. And of course, whichever dev team that was responsible for issuing code could potentially make you know, quick updates to said code to, different, to a different algorithm, which would render those malicious miners' hardware useless against that currency. I believe there is some fear of this very thing you know, playing out with Bitcoin right now regarding this never-ending scaling debate drama. But to answer your question of is this a problem, um, I have to. I've, I've seen this as an you know, you know. To, I'm sorry. To answer your question of is this a problem, I've not seen this as an actual problem as of yet, as miners, you know, for the most part, have stuck to being good actors and keeping with the incentives, trying to stay as profitable as possible. I don't. I don't believe it's actually been a real issue yet, but theoretically could be. I guess we will have to wait and see what happens. Cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin have done a pretty good job of creating incentive structure that rewards miners far more for playing by the consensus rules rather than trying to be malicious to try to game the system. Sort of interesting things to think about. There are always forces and counterforces at play. Well, I hope this answers your question, Derek. I always enjoy digging into this sort of stuff. Interesting things to ponder. So just a reminder again, um, you know, I, I mentioned this in the last response that I did, but if you go over to cryptoskim.com, you know, the homepage there, there'll be a tab on there that says TSP questions. So I'll put uh, any of the supporting information that I answer, you know, responding in these questions in that page. So you just scroll down, find the description of the question, the episode number that it's, that it's in, and then you'll be able to find any of this, uh, where I'm getting this information from, or supporting information I'd like to put from these, you know, pretty technical answers. So I'm doing the best I can to stay up. You know, these are very, some of these are very time-sensitive questions, like this was uh, late June, so I got a lot of questions. I'm working through the backlog here. Um, Jack can only play so many of them, otherwise it's kind of like, it'd be just a bunch of my questions. So maybe I'll uh, just make note that this was from the late June, so... Anyway, I hope everybody's having a great day. This is Brandon, Brandon from CryptoSkim signing off. I've got to say, I think Brandon's been an incredible addition to our expert council. I, I've learned so much more about how cryptocurrency actually works since he's, he's joined us. So I think it was really cool. Anyway, I want to kind of wrap up the show talking about the concept of a libertarian city or a libertarian town. Um, I recently shared a post on Facebook and I'm not going to read the article. In fact, I, I haven't really read the article. From the comments, I get the gist of the article. But um, it's being pushed around by progressives about how libertarians suck because there was this libertarian supposed city or town in Texas that basically fell apart and now dogs are running the streets and, and what have you, which I'm sure dogs were running the streets before this town existed. That's just how it is. But the, the gist of this is this town was going to be like a big town with all of the services from a city, but it was going to be libertarian and tax-free and blah, blah, blah. Well, it didn't work out because there's no free freaking lunch, right? Um, and what I said when I, when I shared this is these people don't even know what libertarian means, and there's no such thing as a libertarian city or town. Now, what I want to say is, number one, if you want to read the article, which is clip, clickbait bullshit tripe, I'll have a link in the show notes for you. You can just take a look down below and you, you can go check out that article. But there is a way to use the structure, the legal structure of a town or a city to protect people that live there from annexation by another city or town 
so that they don't end up falling under that town's legal structure and hence their laws and restrictions in government. That's about the only thing, and it would then it would do nothing. That would be the only thing. It was just that's we're a town. Piss off elsewhere. We don't do your shit. Go away. But you can't actually form a town government and then claim the reason you did it was for libertarian principles. Because I would ask you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do that's libertarian? What are you going to do that creates more freedom in people's lives? Well, we'll pass laws against you know interfering with people's lives. Why do you need them? Why do you, if there's no if if there if, you, if the town government doesn't do anything, why do you need laws? Well, we'll pass a law that says open carry's legal. Well, if your state says it's illegal, it doesn't matter because your state's law trumps your town's law. Do you understand that? We'll pass if you you can pass all kinds of legalization or decriminalization laws that don't do anything to protect the members of the city or the town should the county or the state or the federal government choose to enforce their laws that are counter to your laws. You're actually drawing a giant bullseye on yourself and begging for it rather than just not having a town and no one says anything. And this is, this is the reason I wanted to talk about this today is this principle is so damn important and it's the biggest thing that people don't understand. Liberty advocates like me will often say, if you want to be political, Start with the lo most local forms of government if you want more liberty and freedom. These are the places to start pushing back government. Okay, and when what, I, I think the problem is a lot of people will misunderstand that and think, well, that means like the town is the place to get things done. No, the town level, the city level, is the place to go get things undone. Because the principle here that is the actual problem is that the smaller bodies of government do the most to infringe on people's liberties. Because what they're saying is, well, there's already all of these federal laws, codes, and regulations for people to follow. There's already all of these state regulations and codes and laws to follow. And the county has a set of state regulations, laws, and codes to follow. And what we need to do is get everybody together and elect a bunch of people that are self-important assholes to put in more laws and regulations and things and the ways that people should live that we already have from the other three tiers of government. And then the complete epitome of this is an HOA, which says not only do we need all of the laws of the city, the county, the state, and the federal government, we need our own little blue hair bullshit laws here to tell our neighbors how to live, right? And, and, and that is the principle at work here. We have been conditioned to believe that the best government is local government. Now, I can tell you how that could be true. If local government superseded higher government, then that could be the case. But it doesn't. It doesn't. There is not a single law you can pass at the city level or a town level that will be able to override a law from the county, from the state, or from the federal government and successfully stand up in court. So the only reason to form a smaller body of government is to put more restrictions and more more rules and regulations on people's lives. And to administer that, you're going to need a source of funding to pay the enforcers. And the only way you're going to get that is through some form of taxation. 
Well, what if we had a libertarian city, Jack, and people paid for their services? Then you don't need a city. Then you don't need a town. You don't need anything. Because as soon as you build it, it will start to grow. And somebody will say, well, I've never really liked this. And I want this to go away. And if you can get a majority of people together, you can use force to make whatever that is go away. Well, by the time you've made that one thing go away, you've grown the government that was never supposed to really be a government exponentially to the point where it had the authority to make that go away. So now, maybe somebody turns around looks at you and says, I don't like what you're doing, and just like we made Tom's thing go away, I want to make your thing go away. And all of a sudden, the, the government that you thought was protecting you is coming after you. And that is always how small governments work. I don't mean small in size, I mean small in region. Regional governments have notoriously been the most oppressive. Because the only thing they can do to justify their freaking existence is pass laws that apply to you that would not have had they not been there. Now, you would say to me, but Jack, like local police, right? So the town has a local police force, and that police force could only be, you know, enforcing basically state level or county level law, right? So they don't have to have new laws for, but how are you going to pay them? You're going to pay them through taxing. And if you don't have a city or a town, then you'll fall under the jurisdiction of your sheriff's department. And you're good. What about private security? You don't need a city or a town, and people could pay for that if they wanted. Now, here's what I actually do think would be useful. And I don't even think it needs to be a city or a town. But you can do something that's called a neighborhood covenant. And this is something that we had where we lived in Arkansas, near Hot Springs. We were out in the county, so we fell under the sheriff's jurisdiction. And if we had formed a town, then the sheriff would say, we're not going to help you. And a lot of you say, good, but not necessarily. Because they'll still come if you've done something they don't want you to do. But if your house gets robbed and you need, in our, our real world versus our you know mythological world that we'd like to see, just to file my insurance, I need a police report. They're not coming to do that because you're a town. You take care of it yourself. That's what they would tell you. So with a neighborhood covenant, basically, it was like a homeowner's association or a property owner's association. But it said the following. One, the people that moved out there did not want high-density population. So you can only have one occupied structure per five acres. Now understand, everybody that went there went there with that understanding. This wasn't done to anybody. When it was first established was when it was being developed and people were buying lots And it was already unknown when you bought a lot there. That was that was a restriction. Number two, if it was a mobile home, it had to be permanently affixed and had to have basically a real roof. In other words, you couldn't just throw an RV on there and live in there. I know you may think that's not fair, but you know what? Again, everybody entering that knew that. And frankly, anybody that had like an RV there, no one really cared if your aunt lived in it. Okay, But what we didn't want was 100 RVs you know, packed into one place. So that was another restriction. Um, and, and then the third one was any additional restrictions must have 100% consensus of all adult residents 
to be amended to this agreement. That was it. The whole thing. So, why would you need to add a restriction if everybody already agreed with it? And that worked really well. No one bothered anybody. And if somebody did something you didn't like, you either settled it by talking to them about it or you dealt with it. You just let it go. That was it. And if anybody was cooking meth or something like that, that falls under county law enforcement. And, and, and I don't think you can do much better than that. The, the, the other thing, though, would be that really doesn't, and this was a case that somebody made to me, and I agree with it, by the way. It doesn't prevent your annexation. So let's say one day Hot Springs, Arkansas, the, the city, decided, you know, there's a lot of people living up there now, and it wasn't really worth anything, and there wasn't much of a tax base to it. But now, look at all those houses. There's several hundred houses up there, and uh, we want it. Now, a problem for Hot Springs in that case is, well, then where's, where's our water jerks? Where's our sewer? Like, the, the money to put that in there, they'd never get it back, right? So everybody's up there on a septic and a well. Um, but it would still be possible for them to come after you. If you incorporated it as a town, then you have the autonomy as a town. You're basically the corporation is the town. That's how towns work. It's much more difficult for someone to grab you. But then you are going to be in the situation of you have to provide your own local law enforcement. Now, it could be one Barney Fife who's a retired officer that people voluntarily pay, you know, that just basically writes up reports and stuff like that, and anything bigger he refers off again to the sheriff's department. But you'd have to have some mechanism then, and as soon as you do that, you fall into the position of how do you fund it, and then the response, of course, is voluntarily. That's fine. But the problem is you haven't really done anything to further your liberty. All, the only justification for that, again, is it's kind of defensive wall. Because one of my only fears about the property that I have right now is that someday the freaking giant, giant HOA, which is all that it is, that is the city of Lakeside, is going to eyeball this area and want to annex us. Uh, my vet told me that recently his area was annexed. It was either Lake Worth or Lakeside, and they voted on which one to annex them. And I'm like, what about the option of we don't want to be annexed? So we didn't have that option. So, I mean, that, that is about the only reason I can see for that. The problem, again, though, is people want... See, this is the, the biggest problem we have. People want to control other people. People want to say, hey, I don't like the way that that looks. I don't think you should be able to park on your own grass. Stupid shit like that. They want to be able to do it. And as soon as you give them a mechanism to impose their will on others, they will use it. And they will use it far more maliciously than a person that actually comes to your door and threatens you. Because what they're going to do is they're going to, to, to like basically falsely wash their hands of your blood by sending a third party to do their will for them With the justification of, well, that's just the way society works. Invisible social contract. If you don't like it, move to Somalia. But you, you really can't, in a, a, a system like ours, where federal law trumps state law and state law trumps county law and county law trumps city law, where all you can do with a form of government is add more restrictions, add more laws. You can't pass a negative law that, 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 that does away 
with a superior form of government's law. When I say superior, I mean legally superior, not morally, ethically, or in any real way superior. But you can't do it. You can't say, um, no one in our city has to pay state taxes. The state will beg to differ with you, and the courts will find they are right. The, the courts will absolutely find that they are right. It, it doesn't work. And again, that the, the, the actual importance there isn't the fact that it doesn't work, that I'm right about that. The importance is understanding the maliciousness of local and state governments. Again, what they are saying is, all of this stuff that the federal government says you have to do isn't enough. You need more. And we need your money in order to give it to you, whether you want it or not. And what amazes me is when you talk about libertarian principles with statists, they, they talk like you're the crazy one. You're just insane for believing that people actually can do and inter, do business with and interact with each other without force and coercion by a third party. That it is actually necessary for a state with ungodly power to steal from both of you to ensure your ability to work together. I'm sorry that it's, that it's not simple. This is why I've discussed the concept not of virtual cities, but virtual nations. To, to form something that could push back on what another nation says you have to do, you have to be on equal standing with them. You have to be on equal standing with them. And say, hey, hey, we're a nation. Your laws don't apply to us. We're equal to you. Now, will it work? I don't know. I think it can work in some rudimentary initial ways that could build up enough momentum over time, multiple generations, to push us more and more toward, toward the direction of a stateless society. Not to one, toward the direction thereof. But it's just one tool. But you, you can't... You can't create Liberty Town, Texas, Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, anything, and use it to tell the state that their laws don't apply. So you're back to what? More laws and regulations. Well, we have to have some idea of how people were going to build their houses. Well, the county already has like codes and shit, right? Now, if you're lucky, you're like me. They actually have nothing. See, I live in the way that you would see a libertarian city actually be. There's no city government, no city laws, no city taxes that apply to me. I'm taxed by the county, laws are enforced by the county, but there is no city. There's no building codes. We don't even have building codes in, in, in out, out in the county, Tarrant County, Texas, there's no building codes. There's nothing. They can't say shit. Like, there, you have to get a permit for a septic tank or a septic solution. And once you get that, you're clear to build. And if you want to build a house that's going to fall on top of your head, you are free to do it. And you know what? Do you know how many houses here have fallen down on top of people's heads? Not a single one. Not a single one. It's almost like when people build a house... They build it in a way that is structurally sound because they don't want their house to fall down. The best way to have a libertarian city government is to not have a city. 
But again, you do run the risk of annexation. So I think that the, the, the play then is try to back out far enough in low enough density where there is no real win for them in annexing you. That's kind of what we had in Arkansas. I worry that, you know, there's, there's starting to be, I'll bet you there's eyeballs on us right now. And, and, and uh, this is why I know who my neighbors are. I'm very active on next door. My, my sentiments about the, the evils of government are well known. And should it ever happen, I am going to rally every single person I can to push back against it. I, absolutely. Like, I have, I have neighbors that have already said, I'll be on the freaking roof with my AR before that happens. And I'm like, good, that's, that's the ad. I don't know that you really will, but that is the attitude you need to have if there's ever any hope of pushing back annexation. So that's, that's the only way you'd ever get me on board with forming a town is solely for the purpose of resisting annexation by other cities and towns. I hope that makes sense. And I hope it gives you a new understanding of what I mean when I say the small local governments are the most oppressive because they're always adding shit to the mountains of laws and rules and regulations and taxes that you already have to pay everybody else. There's no free lunch, even for the state. When a state forms, it has to steal to feed itself. Keep that in mind whenever you start thinking about forming Liberty Town or Libertyville or what have you, or whenever you see pieces of pablum puking garbage from progressives about how libertarian cities have failed. There's no such thing. You want a libertarian city? Go where there isn't a city government, and then you'll have it. That's the freaking point. All right, guys, if you like this show and the work that I do, and you want to help support us, one of the most painless ways for you to do that is simply do online shopping at tspaz.com. All you got to do is type in tspaz.com when you want to shop online and use the links there to do your shopping and you help support the Survival Podcast. And that applies to everybody in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom now. One of the things you'll see there are my reviews of Amazon items of the day. And the item of the day I have for you today is an encore item. I brought it back around from over a year ago. It is the Nutra Ninja Pro. Now, there's a couple reasons that I brought this thing back around. One is that back when I brought it around the first time, it was like 89 bucks for a refurb that's no longer available. So since it was no longer available, I had to change it in the old review because you don't want you clicking a link and not being able to find it. All right. So it was 89 bucks for a rebuild. The new ones were like 120 bucks at the time. If you'll take a silver one and you don't want to make a fashion statement or whatever, they're 60 bucks now because Nutra Ninja has a new one out that I don't think really does enough for you to be worth the new extra money. So this has become like the second tier item and they've dropped the price down to $59.95 or something with free shipping on Amazon. The Nutra Ninja is like a blender. It's one of those upside down ones. You put stuff in the cup, you squirrel the, the top on it, turn it upside down and you push it and it is badass. If you read my review, you'll see how I got down between the Nutra Ninja uh, and the Nutra Bullet, and how I made determinations that there was just so much better build and power to the Ninja that that was the way to go. In this article, I give you a recipe to make a strawberry limeade using Steva. That when you look at the total amount of carbs in it, um, you're going to end up with about 45 carbohydrates to the gallon. Now, carbohydrates, no matter what the nutritional bimbo tells you on the nightly news that they bring on to be an expert who ain't, carbohydrates are sugar. Let me say it one more time. Carbohydrates are sugar. Carbohydrates are sugar. Freaking carbohydrates are sugar. All carbohydrates other than fiber-based carbohydrates are sugar. 
Fiber, being indigestible, is actually a sugar that you can't digest. It's really what it comes down to. The, the molecular structure that is a carbohydrate is sugar. Okay. Now, 45 carbs to the gallon. Do you know how many carbohydrates, i.e. sugars, are in one can of Coke, Pepsi, etc.? One can on average. 42 to a can. 42 to a can. A 12-ounce serving of my uh, strawberry limeade has 4.5 carbohydrates. A 12-ounce can of Coke that your kid's drinking has over 40. Now, think if they drink four or five or six of those a day, seven days a week. They're killing themselves, or you're killing yourself. And all these diet sodas and stuff, I'm not going to get into it, but I believe they are almost worse for you than the sugared versions because of the shit that's in there. The reason I see this as a survival item is just this one thing you can make with it alone is a survival food that your kids will be happy to drink. And it's easy to do. And I tell you all how to do it in there. But the other thing I brought it back for is I have been getting so many freaking emails since I did my last cooking show. And this is the product that I use to make my chili sauce for my fish tacos. This thing is phenomenal. It does so many things. I use this when I make meads. And I want to really get like apple flavor into a mead. I'll just throw a couple of apples in there and just buzz them up and then dump that into the fermenter. And you get really great surface area exposure. You get really great apple flavor. I'll do the same thing with ginger when I'm using ginger in meats. I make ginger garlic paste with this thing that I use for my cooking. It's fantastic. It's small. And clean up. You take the lid off. You fill it up with water. You put the lid back on and you run it. How much cleaner can you get? It's like a thousand million RPMs in there. But the fish tacos, I wanted to revisit how to do that with you today. Okay, You can go back and listen to the, the, the last cooking show on, on this and get more details because I'm going to go quick with it. But basically, you just take dry chili peppers like anchos, New Mexico's, etc., whatever you want to use. I usually use equal amounts of ancho and New Mexico. The anchos are, are spicier, and the New Mexico's have more of a fruity flavor. And that way, they're not over-spicy for people. I usually, to make a batch, I usually use two of each. You pull the tops off, you get all the seeds out, You boil some water. Into that boiling water, you throw those peppers after the boil. You know, you boil it and you shut it off. You throw peppers, the peppers in there. You throw a handful of dehydrated onions in there. You throw like a quarter handful of dehydrated garlic in there. Okay? You let it steep. You take it and you dump it in your Nutraninja. You put your lid on it and you buzz it until it's, it's well incorporated. So it's all ground up. Then, over the sink... Carefully with a rag, because some of it will probably go, because it's hot. And chili sauce makes a mess. You slowly open it. And once it does its thing, you can go ahead and open it up. You dump it back in the pot. Now, you add you know a couple dashes of how much heat you want of hot sauce. I'll use Cholula hot sauce. You add a couple ounces of lime juice. You add a little bit of cumin, salt and pepper to taste. And you cook it down a little bit till it's a little bit thicker. Okay? That's it. The sauce is done. It's ready to go. Then you take your fish. I like to use swordfish and mahi. Make the best fish tacos this way. Works with, work, this works awesome with, with, with chicken. It works awesome with beef. right? But fish is the best. Beautiful with shrimp. Okay. You take your fish. Cut it into cubes about the size you want for your tacos. Pre-cut it. Especially mahi and swordfish. Because it's a beefier, meatier fish. Give it a good towel dry first. So you want it nice and dry. Cut it up in cubes. Salt and pepper on it. Olive oil, start cooking it. 
Cook it until it's about 75% done. You, you probably are not ready to eat it yet, but you, you're, it's close. If it's had a lot of water come out of it, some will, sometimes it will, sometimes it won't, drain that excess off. If you drain it, add a little bit of oil back to it because it's, it, it's nice the way that it helps coat with the, uh, with the, the chili sauce. So dump off the extra moisture if you have it. If you have to dump it off, add a little bit of olive oil back to it so it's all nicely coated with olive oil. And then take a spoon and start spooning it over your fish and mix your fish around as you do this. So one hand you've got like a light spatula, the other hand you've got a spoon. Some people can't walk and chew gum, so maybe you have to spoon it and then mix it. It's up to you. But you I'm usually kind of mixing it as I do it until it's just all nicely coated. And like let it finish cooking. Right at the end, big hand, if you like cilantro, big handful of chopped cilantro goes in there. And if you want to, you can add some cilantro and cook it into your chili sauce, but it's not necessary. I like to add it right at the end. Like it's done cooking, you turn the heat off, you're about to start putting it in your taco shells or what have you, big handful of cilantro and mix it through. And then dress your tacos however you want. This tool makes that process so much easier and so much faster. And cleaning stuff with chili sauce is a pain in the ass. Again, this, fill it up with water to the full line, put a lid on, clean, done, finished. I love the nutrient. 60 bucks, the thing's a steal, man. Get yourself one if you don't already have it or something like it. Um, it's the best tool I've found for this type of stuff. Next up, let's talk about the YouTube channel today. I got a YouTube channel for you today called, um, it is called Exploring Alternatives. And it's people living in tiny houses, vans, cars, tents, yurts, stuff like that. A lot of off-grid stuff. A lot of people live in like a really travel lifestyle. It's cool. Lots of subscribers. Don't remember how many, but it's, I think it's close to a million or something like that. It's, it's a very, very popular channel. I had never seen it before. Um, I have started to watch little bits of it. I like it. It's, it's very high production value. It's something done like to the production value level of like TV. But here's what I love about it so far. Anyway, I try to watch shows like Tiny House Hunters and Tiny House Nation and stuff like that because it is interesting what they do with the houses. But they always have fake bullshit from the family. I, she wants this and he wants that and blah blah and they have they like encourage them to argue about it and like I want a tiny house but I want a basement and a cellar and I want to be able to store my ski gear and my beer collection and my wine collection and oh shut up like you're, you just it doesn't have any of that crap it's like here's how we live and that's what's cool so check it out again it's called exploring alternatives I have it in my links today remember you can always send me suggestions for the YouTube channel of the day. Uh, my, my, my hard thresholds, they have to have at least a thousand subscribers. That means they've been around a while. But it could be big, it could be little, it could be yours, it could be something you know about. I have a ton of them lined up, so if you send me something now, probably won't get on the air for like a month or more. Okay, just because of how many of this has become really popular. But I like this one, check it out. It is, again, Exploring Alternatives. Alright, so our song of the day. Our song of the day is called Now. It's by Fireflight, who I had not heard of, and I'm gonna be honest. Not my style of music, mostly. It's okay, but it's a little bit too <laughs> screamy for me, um, and it's just not my my thing. But I think it's good that I play different styles of music, because music's very, very personal, highly personal thing. So um, I do love the point of the song, the lyrics. Uh, let me give you a few of them. The opening, 
The clock is ticking the seconds pass you by as you lie frozen. You are petrified of one more failure. A swing and a miss might break your heart in half. Yeah, I know you feel alone. Don't let it break your back. Don't lay down. Don't let it destroy you. Man, that is like the secret to life right there. First of all, it's kind of back to our discussion about anxiety earlier. Like, most of the things people worry about never happen. And if they do, it ain't that big of a deal. I have failed my ass off in life. I mean, I have failed so many times. And people only see, in the end, your successes. That's what people actually pay attention to, is your successes. Well, let me give you a wake-up, Snowflake. You ain't going to have no successes until you start failing first. Here's some more stuff. Your head is spinning. The path is right before you, but you're stopping. The cycle locks you in and you can't see. That you're so close to finally being free. Yeah, I know, yes, I know that you can turn the key. There's freaking doors in life and no one opens them for you. This is my view. This is my view of doors in your life. The first thing you do, because it's a door, you grab the doorknob and you try to turn it. If it's locked... Take the freaking hinges off the other side and go through the freaking door. If you have to burn it down, break it down, slam it down, or find a different door, do something, go somewhere, make something happen, because, as I keep saying, you get one dance that is this life. What happens next? I don't know. Some people believe one thing, some people believe another, some people believe in reincarnation. I don't care what happens. I know that in this life that matters, that is important, or we wouldn't be here. You get one shot. So you can lay around talking about getting your ass kicked, or you can stand up, brag about your battle scars, and go back to war until you get what you want. That's the secret to life. You gotta fight for shit. You gotta believe in shit. You gotta be excited about it, or it's not gonna happen. People won't do it for you. You will have to do it yourself. And for some of you that are younger, I know that I'm like the only person in your life that will effing tell you this shit. But it's the real shit. You got nothing coming to you except what you earn. But you deserve everything you want as long as you're willing to do the work to get it. Great way to send off on a Friday. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.